this last week, a little shorter sermon, a little shorter service. It's probably going to be the case for the entirety of this series. We're going at it a little differently than we might go after it if we were working our way through Matthew's gospel account from start to finish. If we were going about it that way, we would probably dive into some contextual things like who Matthew is, this author of this book of the Bible, the audience that he's writing to, primarily Jewish people, which gives us an understanding of why there are so many prophecies of the Old Testament shown and Jesus shown to be the fulfillment. We dive into some of the breakdown of how you move from major chunks of teaching, Jesus' teaching like the Sermon on the Mount, into his ministry and miracles, and then back to another big chunk of teaching, and then back to another chunk of ministry and miracles. We, we would get into all of those things if we were working through the book of Matthew from start to finish, but because of the way we're going after this, it functions a little bit more like an Advent devotional in that we're, we're looking at a passage of Scripture with Christmas in mind, asking the question of, of what might be there, what might be underneath the story that perhaps we haven't seen before. And so uh, my, my big hope would be that though the sermons are shorter, that you would walk away with, with one or two things that just awaken your heart to the wonder of this Christmas story and that you just wouldn't be able to escape it throughout the week, that it would just sit with you and, and come back to your mind and, and move your heart over and over and over again. Last week, we, we launched this series the way anyone would launch a series with the hope of awakening people's hearts to the beauty and wonder of Christmas all over again, namely with one of those so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so passages as we spent some time in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, one of those passages of scripture that many of us might be tempted to skim simply on the basis of not being able to pronounce most of the names, trying to get our way to the good stuff. And, and I attempted to make the case last week that the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel account is the good stuff. Like right off the bat, Matthew's out to make clear that, that the Christmas story is not some fable. This is a true story rooted in human history with real names and real places. That if the Christmas story was nothing more than a fable, our ultimate aim would be to then figure out the moral of the story the lesson learned that, that we might implement into our lives to make our lives better, which would make Christmas ultimately not about what God has done, but about what you and I do or don't do. The God of the Bible, nothing more than some divine elf on a shelf. Matthew declares something vastly different so that there's a, a difference between the moral of the story on the one hand and the heralding of history on the other hand. There's a difference between looking for a moral and looking for a hero, that the Christmas story is the heralding of something true, something that's happened outside of us to bring about our rescue from sin and death. I mentioned this last week. It's got all the classic in ingredients of a compelling fairy tale, king in a kingdom, fire-breathing dragon, a damsel in distress, and a dragon-slaying rescuer, and yet it's absolutely true. So that the genealogy is not the boring part of the Christmas story. To be glanced over and moved past quickly on our way to the good stuff, to the action. Rather, it declares to us that this story actually happened and it's still happening today. You're a part of the story. You're a part of Jesus's family tree if you're a Christian. It's the truest of fairy tales, making it different from all other fairy tales. It's a story dripping with God's mercy and grace, evidenced by the many scandalous names included in Jesus's family tree. 
mine one of them. It's a story declaring not the hope of intrinsic lovability or moral fiber, but God's unmerited favor towards sinners. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So that Christmas is not the celebration of self-rescue. Christmas is the celebration of Jesus, our rescuer. But the Christmas story is not just the story of a coming savior, but also a coming king. Look at Matthew chapter two, verse one. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. If you remember from your time with Shakespeare in grade school, uh, Julius Caesar was murdered in the wake of an assassination plot by a Roman senator by the name of Cassius. And upon Caesar's death, his power was then transferred to Cassius, who, who then forced those governors beneath him to determine their loyalties to him. And the way that he went about it, the price of peace, was to tax them essentially at the cost of three times the annual income of most of the, the regions under Roman rule at the time. It was a significant price to pay to show loyalty to this new ruler. One of those governors under Cassius's reign, forced to prove his loyalty, was none other than Herod's dad, the Herod that we read about in Matthew chapter two, who had put Herod in charge of the region of Galilee. So you kind of picture what's going on. Cassius has replaced Caesar, under Cassius is Herod's dad, and under Herod's dad is Herod in the region of Galilee. At the time, Galilee had become a place of refuge for outlaws, making it not only an unsafe place to live, but a, a difficult place to rule. If Herod had any hope of coming up with the portion of the money to, to buy Cassius's loyalty for his father, he was gonna have to bring some, some law and order to lawless Galilee, which helps to explain something of Herod's leadership. If you go back and, and read um, some of the history books on Herod, he was a ruthless man marked by paranoia. He was a man who trusted no one so that he, he even went so far over the course of his life to have not just one, but several of his wives and sons put to death for conspiring against him or for fear of thinking they were conspiring against him. We know that he was a, a Gentile by descent. He had Edomite blood running through his veins, but, but he was also part Jew, his people having been forced to convert to Judaism by a militant group of Jewish people. And his Judaism was something that he took incredibly seriously. He observed all the various ceremonial customs and laws. He even maintained a kosher diet so that one of his closest friends once said about Herod, better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. That's the kind of man Herod was. He was over the course of time given more and more power by the Roman Senate and was eventually named King of Judea, King of the Jews. Meanwhile, you have these pagan astrologers off to the east who, who were incredibly familiar with the, the sacred texts of their day, and they see a star rise in the west, likely reminding them of one of the great prophecies of the Torah. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. These courtroom magicians and astrologers see a star on the move, and it leads them to the city of Jerusalem, the city of Herod, 
king of the Jews in their search for the one born king of the Jews. You see where this story is going? That they might worship him. And notice, it doesn't say born to be king, but born king. The threat is already there in the very birth of Jesus. Verse three goes on to say, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, shocker, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. The, the word translated troubled in, in verse three, it comes from the Greek word terasso, which can also be translated agitate or stir up inside. In other words, Herod was rattled. Why? Why, why is Herod so troubled? Why is he so agitated? Why is he so stirred up internally? And the answer, very simply put, there's only room for one sheriff in town. Right? There can only be one ruler in Judea, one king of the Jews. Not only that, while Herod had been called king of the Jews for roughly four decades at this point in the story, no one had ever called Herod the Christ. Verse four, the Messiah. Herod senses a threat to his throne, which leads him to ask where this king of the Jews is to be born so that he can do away with the threat to his kingdom. And so he assembles the chief priests, the scribes of the people, the Jewish Bible scholars, the guys who had taken all the proper seminary courses in the Old Testament. And we're told in verse five that they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, that's where the Christ is to be born. For so it is written by the prophet, and here in verse six, they quote Micah chapter five, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Chief priests and scribes, they, they saw Micah chapter five as referring to the coming Messiah that God had promised so long ago, that Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem in order for the prophecy in Micah five to be proved true, which wonder of wonders makes it all the more amazing that Mary and Joseph who were living in Nazareth during Mary's pregnancy we're forced to go to Bethlehem because of the decree that went out from Caesar Augustus right before Jesus was born. Going back to last week, God is not only the greatest storyteller in all of the universe, he's the greatest promise keeper in all of the universe. God chooses lowly Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the Messiah, communicating the immeasurable riches of his grace, just like we saw in the genealogy going back to last week that the same words spoken to Bethlehem are spoken to you and me. I didn't choose you because you're impressive. Christmas is the story of God's grace, his lavish grace toward those of us who like Bethlehem are too little and lowly to be among the clans of Judah. It goes on to say in verse seven, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He's trying to figure out the age of this born king. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Right, we know on the basis of where the story goes that Herod has no intention of worshiping Jesus, right? His intention is to do away with Jesus. Verse nine, after listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose from before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Notice the the contrast here between the worshiping wise men and the hostile Herod. You have these, on the one hand, ceremonially unclean Gentile court magicians and astrologers falling at the feet of Jesus in worship. Isaiah 60, verse three, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. It's a worship that flows from their lips, verse two, as they declare Jesus to be king of the Jews. It's a worship that pours forth from their hearts, verse 10, as they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And it's a worship represented in their actions, verse 11, as they fall down before Jesus in a posture of lowliness and lay their treasures at the king's feet. That's one way to respond to Jesus as king, with lips, hearts, and lives that sing to the praise of his glorious grace. Acknowledging that the one who will save his people from their sins, Jesus our savior, he's none other than the king of kings and lord of lords. The alternative is to respond like Herod, who would go on to have all the little baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, age two and under, murdered in an effect to do away with Jesus, who he saw as a threat to his kingdom. But as the remainder of Matthew 2 makes clear in the safeguarding of Jesus, there is no human power that can overthrow the one true king and his divine purpose. Can't be done. And so I think one of the questions this morning for us is this, what what is our response to Jesus? Not only Jesus the savior, but Jesus the king. I would ask, have you received him as your savior and king? He's both, which some scholars argue, is even evidenced in the very gifts that the wise men bring to the feet of Jesus. You have gold, fit for a king, reminding us that Jesus is worthy of our glad submission. You have frankincense, used as a part of temple ceremony, a gift fit for a priest, reminding us that Jesus makes it possible for us to enter into the very presence of God through his redemptive priestly work. And you have myrrh used to prepare bodies for burial, a gift fit for one destined to die, reminding us that those tiny hands were destined to receive the nails of crucifixion. That tiny head was destined to receive a crown of thorns. From the cradle to the cross, Jesus was born to die. Savior, from the cross to the crown, Jesus is worthy of our worship. King, he's both. And both are part of the Christmas story. If you've never done so before, I invite you this morning to, like the Magi, fall at the feet of Jesus as both Savior and King. None of us can can save both our throne and our soul. And if you are a Christian, can we just be honest for a moment this morning and confess that there's a, a residual Herod in all of us, myself included? It's not as if when you became a Christian that that King Herod complex just died overnight, which explains the, the degree to which we'll make sacrifices for the sake of building our own kingdoms. We wanna be in control of our lives and in control of the script. We don't like the idea of God coming in and dethroning us. 
The King Herod in the irreligious heart says, I decide my own truth and meaning in this world outside of God. The King Herod in the religious heart declares, I can trust my own ability to obey God and be accepted by him. I can put him in my debt and control him like a puppet as a result. And thus I'm the one who's really seated on the throne, even as I profess to be a follower of Jesus. I've said it before and I'll say it again. When you became a Christian, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit busted down the walls of your kingdom, headed for the castle, made a beeline for the throne and promptly executed you so that Jesus could take his rightful place as king. And that's good news. But it's not the only good news. God loves us too much to simply convert us and then to just leave us on our own. That's not the story of Christmas. His rescue mission is far more comprehensive than that. He's relentlessly committed to prying our heart's grip from lesser things that cannot ultimately satisfy us in doing whatever it takes to make our hearts happy in him. That's the story of Christmas too. And so I would ask you this morning, as you've come in, is there a part of you that stepped into this building this morning, into this room, wrestling for some semblance of control in your life? Maybe a part of you that knows what it is, even this very morning, to be motivated like King Herod by paranoia and fear. Let me just say this. Jesus is not an enemy of our joy. You and I, we are the greatest enemies of our own joy, amen? Every time we choose the path of self-determination and kingdom building rather than the path of glad submission, those moments usually rooted in one of two things, either pride thinking too highly of ourselves, or unbelief, thinking too little of God. The remedy in both cases is to fix our eyes on the one true king, to see him in all of his goodness, to see him in all of his glory, to see him in all of his grace, that the baby in the manger is now the king seated on the throne of heaven. Going back to last week, Jesus is the king in the lineage of David through whom God has established his eternal throne. Jesus is the death-conquering, sin-conquering, Satan-conquering king whose kingdom shall know no end. So that this morning, we have an opportunity to yet again fall at the feet of the one true king. To worship the one who first ascended not a throne, but a cross. To die for the Herod in all of us. Isn't that glorious? To bow before him, our worthy savior and king. He rules the world. We sing it with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The Bible tells us in the second advent that he will return someday, this king, and he will reward his people with the consummation of his kingly rule and kingdom. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation drawing near to his feet like the wise man laying their treasures before him in the perfect bliss of the new heaven and earth where righteousness and faithfulness and peace shall reign forever. And the church said, amen, come King Jesus. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship this savior and king because he is both. And we see both in the wonder of this Christmas story. We we will have an opportunity to worship King Jesus through the collective song of the church as we lift our voices to him in praise. We have an opportunity in these moments to 
to bow before him and to bring our fear and paranoia before him, to bring the the desire for some semblance of control of our lives and, and the ways that we perceive him as a threat to our own little kingdoms before him and to repent of that and, and to come and receive the bread and the cup yet again, the bread representing Jesus's broken body, the cup representing his shed blood and, and to declare once again, wonder of wonders that Jesus died for the Herod in me and that he's committed to, to working in my life to uproot the residual King Herod until I die or he returns to set all things right. If you want someone to pray with you or for you, our prayer team, have a couple of members of that team in the back of the auditorium available for prayer. Take advantage of that as a, as a way of bowing before Jesus coming before his throne of of mercy and grace. He's a glorious savior and he's also a good king.